decline of Christianity in American culture and the loss of influence of Jesus' church is the result of many issues, perhaps none as great as the evangelical church's conclusions about our future. Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, and Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins' Left Behind series have influenced the vast majority of Christians to anticipate the imminent rise of a dominant figure that will control the world's political, economic, and religious systems and will plunge this world into the Great Tribulation. Is that actually what the Bible teaches us? Have you, or those you know, seriously considered what the book of Revelation teaches? If you are like the majority of people today, you've accepted those ideas without a lot of serious consideration or study. In this series, Dr. Russ McKendry is teaching through the book of Revelation to reveal what it actually says about your future, the role of Jesus' church, and the practical implications those conclusions have on your worldview and everyday life. We hope that you'll join us for this entire series and increase in confidence about what you believe and why. Now, here's Russ with Overcoming Bystander Christianity. Uh, Revelation chapter 13, and I'd like to read verses 1 to 11 and then the last verse in verse 18. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemy blasphemous names on its heads and the beast that I saw was like a leopard its feet were its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast and they worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying who is like the beast and who can fight against it and the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God blaspheming his name and his dwelling that is those who dwell in heaven also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them and authority was given uh, given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on on earth will worship it everyone whose name uh, has not been written in the from the before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain if anyone has an ear let him hear if anyone is to be taken captive to captivity he goes if anyone is to be slain with the sword with the sword must he be slain here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. This calls for wisdom. Let one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. The title of this particular sermon in this series, Overcoming Bystander Christianity, is simply The Beast. Um, I think what comes into focus is two portraits of the beast that John describes and he mentions throughout the book. It's going to kind of pass through the lens of his camera uh, as he writes a couple of different times through the book. Um, and particularly here in this 13th chapter, I think he's the most deliberate about defining and giving, giving us both kind of the nature as well as the character uh, of the beast. Um, I can tell you that with a high degree of certainty, I, I think that we can 
actually interpret and understand what he said here, which makes some of the speculation and the guesswork around uh, the guessing that's going on around the identity of the beast. Even this, this past week, I had uh, one young man sent me a, uh, uh, an article or a post this week uh, just about this very issue. And there's people in the church that are almost like reading this chapter and reading the newspaper at the same time, trying to speculate who this is. Um, I can tell you, tell you that I think with a high degree of confidence that this is a person that already lived. Um, uh, of all that we're going to consider in the book, our study of, the, of Revelation, the identity of the beast that John is describing here in this chapter as well, um, I think is argue, arguably the most intriguing and yet the most misunderstood. Um, now if we step back of it and just look at the character and the nature of this person that John is describing both in a general way as well as a very specific way, I think we can relate to it. Most of us have had, uh, we've had people that are like beasts in our life. Some of you had fathers or perhaps mothers that were beasts. Some of you might have gone to, I know I went to seminary and sat under men that I thought were beasts. Um, actually, there was quite a bit of speculation coming out of Baltimore this week that uh, it might be Peyton Manning is a beast. This is this all-powerful being that just can't be stopped. Um, but in all seriousness, I think that this is something that we need to spend some time on. And I, I think for the most part, the church in the United States has been almost like a, uh, like a child that has been encouraged in kind of a, like a tantrum. Um, the speculation, it's, it's very difficult to talk about this because it seems too simple for a person who has these wild imaginations about who the beast can be. Um, there's, there's a very prevailing fear, I think, among Christians uh, about if, if you get assigned a telephone number that has 666 in the telephone number. Uh, for a while, when I was a young man, they thought that that emblem on your charge card was the mark of the beast. And there's this wild speculation around this that I think that if you spend a few moments and think about it seriously, um, it's not near as, as strange as it may have been. Addresses and license plates numbers, um, I, I don't think we should be afraid of them the way that many of us are. And so we're going to move through this. Now, I, I think besides discovering the identity and the, uh, the nature of the beast that John is talking about, there's also two very clear lessons, significant lessons, that come out of this. One is that we see that adversity in the Christian life is not at all strange, both then and now. And we, we see that because both two times in verse 10 of this chapter as well as in chapter 14, verse 12, uh, John writes to Christians, he said, here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. Now, I think all of us need to hear that from time to time. We need to be told by ourselves as well as other faithful Christians around us that you need, you need to brace yourself. You need to be willing to take a stand and hold to your faith because it's not simple. And a second lesson that kind of comes out of here, and I'll develop these a little bit more at the end, there, there's a consequence to your thinking. And what we see here, particularly in verse 16, uh, I didn't read it, it talks, about, it talks about men and women taking the mark of the beast and their head in their hand. And we're going to talk about that because I think Christianity is, is really compelling when you begin to consider what it says about the relationship between your head and your hand, your thinking and your acting. 
And so we're going to kind of open that up as we move through this this morning. So the outline is simple. We're just going to look at the nature and the identity of the beast, and then we're going to take a little closer look at the two lessons that we can take away from this. And so this first part, the nature and the identity of the beast, I'm going to quickly go through what, for some of you, if you're a non-Christian, I think this might help you. Um, because first I want to give you some textual requirements of the beast identity. Now what I mean by that is that John sets out some things that I think we need to consider. And they qualify certain things and disqualify a lot of other things. And I'm going to give you five of these textual requirements. But just let me say in general as we start here that the description that John gives us of this beast, I haven't seen a single commentary uh, commentator, I've never heard a single person try to say that this needs to be taken literally. Um, not even one. And I've read probably hundreds of different positions or, or thoughts in regard to this. And so this is one of those strange places where there's this amazing consistency amongst Christians. As they look at these verses, they're saying, okay, here's figurative language that can't be taken literally. Not a single commentary I've read and not a single man or woman I've heard thinks that John is actually looking at a seven-headed sea monster coming out of the, the sea. It's something else. And so it can't be taken literally. But there's five other textual requirements that I think kind of guide our understanding of who this might be. The first is the beast must be an individual and a government. Now we know that, in other words, there's kind of a dual imagery that's given here. Generically, he's described as a government because we see in verse 1 that it has, seven, it has ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems, but that doesn't help a lot. But when you look forward into another description of him, in chapter 17 and verse 9 and 10, he said, this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains in which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings. And so the beast has a general identity of a government in the wide lens. And then there's a dual imagery that we also see that kind of converges where he's specifically described as a man. We see that in verse 18 where it says that the number of the beast is the number of a man. And so John has kind of two portraits in this, this file, this folder. One is of the beast in a generic, general way. And the other is the picture of a beast as a man. And both, I think, need to be taken into consideration. Another textual requirement of the beast is that the beast must possess great authority. It tells us in verse 7 that authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. So it seems like this needs to be, if not the leader of the world, it needs to be a significant a person with very significant authority and power. Um, the third textual issue is that the beast must be of an unusually debased character. Um, the character traits that are given, particularly in verse 4 to 7, are heinous. They actually allow us to, maybe if you could think in your mind of a few moments ago when I was describing it, you could take a person that you know that is reprehensible, some of the mass murderers that we've known in our, in our generation, and you can just make, you know, multiply them times 100. Maybe you might get close to this man. So he has to be of an unusually debased character. Fourthly, the beast must be an overt enemy of Christianity. This is not a neutral figure in regard to Christianity. He can be sympathetic to, to religion, but he has to be an overt enemy of Christianity. And we can see that 
based upon the war that John describes in chapter 13. The last of the textual criteria that we're going to try to look at or answer is that the beast's name number must be the 666, 666. Now, I don't think at all John's talking about just the number six three times. I think he's looking at 666, and we'll look at that a little bit closer. So those are the textual requirements that I think kind of guide us through any legitimate conclusion that would be consistent with what John said. So let's look, let's look quickly at some of the answers to the textual requirements. That's always a bad sign when I don't start the clock. Wow, I'm just getting started. <laughs> You're in for the long haul. Um, now the answers to the uh, textual requirements is that the dual imagery is, is fairly simple. That the information that's provided, it's clear enough that we can actually determine that there's two pictures of this, of this identity, not just one. His, his generic identity is Rome, and that's fairly simple. Again, if you look at uh, Revelation 17 and verse 9, it says, This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Now, a Roman, Roman writers, Suetonius uh, and Plutarch, um, they actually both wrote of a Roman festival called, um, it was actually called the Feast of the Seven-Hilled City. And so, in history, we know that Rome was known as the City of Seven Hills. And so, in 179, it seems like it's saying, well, that seven heads actually refers to those seven hills. There's actually a coin that was discovered um, it was called the coin of Vespasian, who was the emperor from AD 69 to AD 79, um, that was picturing the goddess Roma as a woman seated on the seven hills. And so that seems to have s substantial historical correspondence. And so his generic identity seems to be the Roman Empire, but his specific identity is Nero to Nero, who was the emperor of Rome. And again, in verse 1, it says, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems. Now, if you look at that statement in regard to the seven heads, and again, you look under it according to, look at it, to try to let Scripture speak to what that might be in chapter 17 and verse 10, it says, they are also seven kings. Now, here's kind of a cryptogram. This is, he's giving you a statement that kind of has a, a lot of meaning to it. He says, five of whom have fallen, one is and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. Now, if you look at this chart, this, these are the Caesars, the recognized Caesars of Rome. They all came from one family up until Nero. You had Ju Julius Caesar that reigned from uh, B.C. 49 to B.C. 44. Then you had Augustus Caesar that was actually reigning when Jesus was born from uh, 31 B.C. to A.D. 14. Then you had Tiberius Caesar who was reigning when Jesus was crucified. And uh, from A.D. 14 to A.D. 37, then you had Gaius who was also known as Caligula from 30, uh, A.D. 37 to 41. And then you had Claudius from A.D. 41 to 54. Now, if the timing of this book is at all relevant, which I think it is, what John is actually saying five have fallen with this beast. Five have fallen and one is. And then you have this other one that is coming. He said, uh, five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. Well, Nero reigned. He was, he was made the emperor of Rome when he was 17 years old in AD 54. And he committed suicide in AD 68. 
And so he reigned for 17 years, and he had this, this reign that went from, it, it was bad in the beginning, but its progress progressed in a way that I think was consistent with what they suspected was a, a very, very severe bout with, with a number of uh, sexually transmitted diseases. And by the time he was done, he was literally out of his mind. He was known throughout the empire as the beast. Um, but upon his death, the empire was thrown into a cauldron of civil war. And the reason was that is that he took his life and he had no surviving heir. Now, the reason he had no surviving heir is that he actually kicked um, his wife to death who was pregnant. She was both sick and pregnant with their son, and he kicked them both to death. And, and the fact was is that he was the last, because he killed his, his brother Britannicus, um, he was the last surviving heir of Julius Caesar. And so when he died, the line of Julius Caesar died. Now, over the next year, they called it the year of four emperors, and all four divisions of the Roman army suggested they created coups. And they, they made the leader of the army the, the leader in Rome. And, and so Galba was the leader from, uh, for roughly seven months, from AD 68 into AD 69. And then Otho uh, was, was the emperor for just a few months, and then Vitellius. And then lastly, Vespasian, who was the general of the army in the east. He was the one that was leading the siege against Jerusalem and his armies when they broke into Rome and they made him, they made him the emperor. It created a very interesting circumstance because they had to call the, uh, Vespasian in from the east to Rome to now make him the emperor and it created a lull for about three months and Vespasian, once he was the emperor, then he dispatched his son Titus to go back and finish the job, which happened in September of AD, August, September of AD 70. And very, very interesting. Now, I think what he's getting at is that, now, when he says that this one has not yet come, but when he does come, he must remain for only for a little while, that would certainly fit Galba. He was emperor of Rome for only seven months, a very, very brief time. But it also might be looking ahead to Vespasian, who was only emperor for about ten years after a number of civil wars. We don't know for sure. But we know these seven heads in these seven hills, they fit perfectly the picture of what was commonly known about Rome. Now, the ten heads and the ten diadems is another thing that I think I've discovered this. This is a little bit different than the previous series I did in 2004. I believe the ten, head, the ten horns and the ten diadems or crowns are actually the ten provinces. The ten provinces of the Roman Empire that were commonly known and represented among the Senate in, in, in Rome, the city. And so this picture fits like, like a hand in a glove. You can't, I, I, I think in the first century there would have been absolutely no question at all. But given 2,000 years and a lot of weird speculation, we seem to be really confused about this. And so we see secondly that the authority of the beast is something that the text requires of us. Um, he, this dual identity, I think, is, makes it kind of simple, but the authority of the beast, I think, is interesting. And because we see that it, he must be a central figure of great power, it would be impossible, I think, for someone to read the book of Revelation and not conclude that this character that John describes, that he doesn't play this very, very significant role in the outworking of, of the book. Um, we see that in verse 2. He says he has great authority. He reinforces that in verse 7. Authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. World authority. 
Um, secondly, we see under his authority that he was a man of war, and in a general sense that would have made him a significant leader, but in the scope of the book, in verse 4, it's narrowed. It says, they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? The world is enamored with this person, which again seems to fit the, the picture of Nero. Nero, like the other emperors, thought he was God and demanded a lot of both Romans as well as the rest of the world. Um, he created a, a statue over 100 foot tall and demanded that people worship it as if he was God. Uh, Galba at one point even cut off the head of another large statue and put his own head on it because of this emperor worship that was a common practice throughout the empire. But, but this one, this war, in verse 7 it says he was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. In verse 5 it mentions this period of time that we've looked at before of 42 months which is actually the timing between November of 64 to June of 68 which is 42 months. We've seen it over and over again. 1260 days, 42 months, time, times, and half a time, three and a half years, are all the same. They're, they signify the same period of time. And so this war is going to last against the saints for 42 months, which again seems to fit Nero's act of war against the church. He declared uh, Christianity illegal in November of 8064, and he took his life with a sword that he actually had used to execute Christians by plunging it through his throat into his head, the mortal head wound, and he dies on the 9th of June of 1868, 42 months. Uh, thirdly, in this regard to his authority, it, we have kind of a lens through which to see that his power and his authority are actually said to be satanic, which is interesting because in Paul, uh, John says that in verse 2. It says, to the dragon and to it the dragon gave his power as throne and great authority. And so this man isn't just a wicked man, he's a satanic man. He's possessed by Satan himself. He's being motivated, or the power, the dunamis is the term in the Greek, that is a work in him is actually a satanic power. And I think we're going to see that there's a very significant application of this down the road. And so we've looked at this dual imagery, we looked at his authority, and thirdly I want to, to meet the textual demand that he's of unusual debased character, this beast is. The term beast itself was used, it was in reference of a wild or dangerous animal, but it was used figuratively of people with a bestial nature. This would be a person that, you, you wouldn't throw this term around, they didn't in Baltimore, but that's what happened on Thursday night. Uh, but but th this, this particular person is a monster. This person is a monster and nothing safe or sacred around this kind of a person. And uh, we see in verse 2 that it says, And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. There's a lot of debate about this. There's some people that say, well, that was like the convergence of all of the the animals that Daniel described in the book of Daniel and they're all just kind of a hybrid put into this one person or this one this one nation um, some people think that it just depicted the ferocity of Nero throughout like as I said throughout the empire and for for centuries thereafter um, both Christian as well as non-Christian historians referred to him as the beast a monster and so this character is an unusual debased nature. Uh, Suetonius, a, a Roman historian, he wrote this. He said that Nero compelled 400 senators and 600 Roman knights, some of who were well-to-do, 
and of a blemished reputation to fight in the arena. Um, Nero was so extravagant in the way that he lived that he actually had to execute rich people to take their money, to confiscate their, uh, their money for the government, something that we see occasionally. Um, but uh, what he did is that he, he wouldn't just bring charges against them, he would just put them in the Colosseum and let lions eat them, have them kill each other for the amuse amusement of the crowd. But literally hundreds of noble men and women he had killed. And so the Romans didn't particularly like him. They, they, they were doing everything they could, but how could you argue against the God? He was, he was in the line of Julius Caesar. And so his tenure or his leadership in Rome went on for quite some time. Suetonius also mentioned that Nero was a sodomist who is said to have actually castrated a, a young boy, a young teenage boy, named Sporus, and he married him and actually... Uh, beyond his relationship with Sporus, he uh, actually enjoyed homosexual rape and homosexual torture. He, 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 he was a man that pressed sexual deviance to a degree that would be unimaginable for most of us. Um, he actually ruthlessly and brutally killed, uh, by any sense he would be considered a serial killer to us today, but even amongst his family. For he ruthlessly killed his mother, his brother, his wife, his aunt, and many of others that were close to him and of high station in Rome. If you were around him, you would have wondered whether you would have been next. And so in Rome, there was a suspicion and a hatred towards Nero that was unprecedented of any of the other emperors, the Caesars. No one was unpredictable and as a monster as much as, as, as Nero was. Actually, in AD 65, he kicked Pompeia, was his second wife, when she was pregnant and, and very sick. He kicked her to death, which left no surviving children for the line of, of, of Julius Caesar. There, there was no lineage left because of that act of cruelty against his wife. Philip Schaff, a very, very famous church historian, just, just simply titled him a demon in human shape. Perfectly fits this description both Christian as well as non-Christian historical writers. Now, lastly, I want to share one last thing with you with, uh, from Suetonius. He said he so prostituted his own chastity that after defiling almost every part of his body, he also devised a kind of a game in which, covered with the skin of some wild animal, he was let loose from a cage and attacked the private parts of men and women who were bound to stakes. Now, there's a lot of other writing about this. Uh, some writers even say that he actually consumed the genitals of both men and women. And this man fit the description of a monster more than anything that we can imagine. Fourthly, the textual demand that he was uh, an overt enemy of Christianity. This war of the beast is described in verses 5 to 7 when it says, And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, three and a half years, it, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blasphemy his name and, and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. This is the first marking that the dwelling of God is people and not bricks and stone. But anyway, it goes on in verse 7. It says, also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to, to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nations. Now, we do know that this war, the Neuronic per persecution, the persecution that came from Nero, was the first persecution of Rome against the church. Eusebius wrote, he said, Nero was the first of the emperors who showed himself an enemy of the divine religion. 
And so we know this war of the, uh, the war of Rome against the church. It, it didn't have any other suitors. That demand didn't until Nero came along. We also know that Nero actually persecuted Christians as Christians for the fact that they were Christians, not for any other reason. The official cause of the persecution of this war is the distinction that Nero made of Christianity from Judaism. You see, for the previous 30-some years, uh, the, the emergence of the church from Judaism was so close because of the Old Testament scriptures that Rome looked at them through the same lens. When you could see one, you saw both. But in November of AD 64, Nero distinguished the two, and they would never be brought together again. And the reason for that was really a fire that Nero had started in Rome. Uh, from his palace, he could look into different boroughs, um, you know, from his palace, and he could look at different places of the city, and he thought they were beneath him as a god. And so he sent his henchmen to start him on fire. The backlash and the sentiment became so severe. Now, he did that on the 11th of June, AD 64. By November, he had to find some way, like a booger, to get that off his finger because they were going to lynch him. That combined with all these murders and all this taxation and all the different things he was going to do, he was not going to survive. So in November of AD 64, he blamed the Christians. Now, I don't have this on the screen, but Tacitus, another Roman historian, uh, that wrote from AD 56 to AD... Or, 8117. He, he said, he wrote this, he said, by no human contrivance, whether lavish distributions of money or of offerings to appease the gods, could Nero rid himself of the ugly rumor that the fire was due to his orders. So to dispel the report, he substituted as the guilty persons and inflicted unheard of punishments on those who detested for their abominable crimes were vulgarly, call, vulgar, vulgarly called Christians. And so now people that were Christians, as Christians, were being put to death for their faith, for no other reason. It wasn't the color of their skin, it wasn't the amount of their money, it wasn't their age, young or old, it wasn't their sex, male or female, it wasn't their marital status, married or single, it wasn't child status, it was for no other reason that they were Christians. Now, what is interesting is that it came into focus, is that Nero became so hostile in his treatment of Christians that a common practice is that they would impale them and cover them with pitch and light them on fire. And what you know as the Roman candle was Christians burning to light the gardens of Nero at night. He was a monster. And so he persecuted Christians as Christians. Um, we also know that this war against Christianity, that Nero persecuted, his persecution against Christians lasted exactly 42 months, and it was over. When Nero died... Rome lost interest with Christians. They were almost gone. He had almost successfully completely wiped out the church. Peter had been crucified upside down in Rome before Nero. Paul had been beheaded in Rome by Nero. Uh, John had been exiled to Patmos by Nero. And the reason for the exile in many different traditions is that he actually tried to have John boiled alive in hot oil. But for some reason or another, God spared his life and it so fear, it, it caused Nero to fear him so bad that he didn't kill him. He just said, get him away from me. And he put him to Patmos where he would write this letter. And so there's amazing correspondence here between all of these things that causes me to say that some of this speculation that I read last week is just like crazy to me. 
It's like if you, were, if you were a person that went into a building to do somebody harm and they were pointing to everyone else, you would wonder, what, how do they do that? You might be glad, but you know it's not the right guy. And I think what most of you think about who he is could be wrong. Now, the fifth and the final textual requirement is this name number, this name number of the beast. Uh, now, we see it in the last verse of this, of this chapter where it says, this actually calls for wisdom. It takes a skillful mind. Let the one who has understanding that is really trying to get at this uh, calculate the number of the beast, for it is the, the number of a man. And his number is 666. Now, again, this is what they call a cryptogram, which is a type of puzzle that kind of consists of a short piece of encrypted text. Now, the Hebrew spelling of... of any Caesar, when in, you look at, at Nero, Neron Kaiser was his name, it was, that, that's what it was in Hebrew, and uh, it's been documented by archaeological finds in the first century that the Hebrew spelling of Neron Kaiser, actually using the, the equivalent of Hebrew, of Hebrew letter numeration, and we, we do that all the time, when, you know, they still do it when they talk about the Super Bowl. You know, you, you look at all those numbers and you've got to figure it out in your head because in, in Roman numerals, uh, you know, a large I is one, you know, and, and X and V and all of those numbers, they all have numbers. But when you spelt Neron Kaiser in, in, in Hebrew, it came up to exactly 666. The value of his names. There, there, was, there was no question in the first century who he was talking about. Absolutely none. And for some reason, we're worried about the emblem on our charge card. We, we turn down telephone numbers if they have 666 in them because we're afraid that we're taking the mark of the beast unwittingly. But we're afraid that we could somehow get it on us. We're going to pass under a scan. They're going to put a chip in our hands. All of that stuff is, is completely fallacious. And so what does that leave us with? Well, I think the real lessons that come out of this are two. There's two very significant ones. And... They teach us something about Christianity in general, but they teach us about the Christian life in particular. In other words, it gets really personal. It just doesn't tell us about this group of people that we consider to be Christians, that kind of in general, this I, you know, generalization. It tells us what it's going to be like if we become Christians. And I would tell you that some of you should take great encouragement of the fact that God's grace has made its way into your life because you actually admitted you're not a very good person. You actually came to a God that offered you forgiveness. And you said, I, I, I want to be a better man. I want, to, I want to live in a way that would honor you instead of dishonor you. And things began to change. But it, it seems like God throws a curveball then because it doesn't seem to get easier. And unless you know some of this, these realities about Christianity, I've seen a lot of people get very, very confused. And it's almost like, why did you do this to me? I've had people come back and tell you, why did you trick me into doing this? Because ever since I became a Christian, it's gotten a lot more difficult. But you, my, those people don't bother me or trouble me near as much as some of you who became Christians and nothing changed. Because something has to change. And I think we see these two lessons emerge. The first is adversity is a very normal aspect of the Christian life. Now, we, we saw that in verse 10. It said that here is a call for endurance of, of the faith of the saints. This is of you kind of faith. There's something that God puts in you that 
it, it, you need to tend, just like you know, keeping a casserole from burning in the oven. You've got to pay attention to it. You, there's things that you can't just be mindless of, you know, in your driving. Some people aren't mind, mindful of their driving, but, but, but there's some things that you need to pay attention to, and, and the Christian life is described like that. He says it twice in, in verse 10 as well as chapter 14 and verse 12, that he's actually preparing his followers. And he's saying, you need to put your cup on because you're going to take a few for the team. And for some reason, we all get discouraged. When God puts us under that scrutiny, it seems like something's wrong. And I've had hundreds of, you know, in 21 years of counseling, I can tell you I've had hundreds and hundreds of hours of counseling of people that have come to me confused because their life isn't going easy. Because someone that they love died. That a business they started didn't survive that their academic pursuit is cut short because they didn't get accepted to graduate school. But it seems like Jesus from the very beginning tried to brace us. And it sounds different than what we hear in normal in the church today. And in Matthew 16 and verse 24, it said Jesus told his disciples, a disciple now is just a learner, someone who just subscribed to Jesus' authority and teaching. He said, if any of you would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's a cost of discipleship. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to die. You can't follow him and live too. Because no one can serve two masters. That includes you. And I, I think that this is an interesting thing because some people think that you can, you can suddenly die and it, it's more about following in a church or following a personality than is following Jesus. And some of you have had to take tremendous stands. Um, maybe even amongst family members, about it, Jesus being more important and the authority of Scripture being more important than your own ideas or the ideas of other people. And this adversity shouldn't surprise you. Christianity isn't intended um, to take you out of your life. Christianity is intended to turn you around and push you back into it in the most intelligent, intentional way possible. And that's, that's a very important principle that we can see here is that Jesus is telling them before all of these things happen, he's telling them, you need to prepare yourself. This is going to take some endurance. Now, there's some of you that are hanging on to your marriage by the skin of your teeth. There's some of you that are hanging on to jobs. You're hanging on to academic pursuits by the skin of your teeth. And to you, Jesus would say, hang on. It's not over. I'm not going to come in and just make it go away. You're going to have to endure. And so that's the first lesson. The second lesson is, is one that I, I think is kind of obvious to most of us, is that he shows us here that your thinking has consequences on your living. Now, for those of you that really haven't come to that conclusion, let me just tell you that you can't toy with every idea under the sun and not have it goof you up. Because if it's confusing you on the inside, your life is going to be a mess on the outside. Now, we, we see this connection in verse 16 of, of this 13 chapter. It said, Also the beast causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. Now, this imagery is very, very significant throughout Scripture. If you go all the way back to what the Jews called the Shema passage in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4 to 9, God told his people, he said, look, the Lord your God is one. You're supposed to love me with every part of your being. And he said, I want you to, to, to put your, my word in your heart. He said, I want you to wear it 
has frontlets on your head and your hand. Now, your head is how you think, and your hand is how you act. And so he wasn't telling them. The Jews took it literally. Again, they, they went out and made these little boxes, and some of you have seen them. They, they, they actually roll up these little verses, and they put them in these boxes, and they carry them around on their head. And then they carry them around on their, on their hand. I mean... I guess that might help some way. I don't know how, but that's not what he meant. He said, you're supposed to know it in your thinking. It's supposed to change your thinking. And because it changes your thinking, it changes your acting, your living. Now, if you fast forward several thousand years, actually, when Paul is trying to encourage the church in Philippi, he writes in Philippi, Philippians chapter 2, in verse 12 and 13, he said, you need to work out your salvation by fear and trembling. And so he's telling, he's telling like all of us, look, you claim to be a Christian, live like a Christian. And, but he, he gives you a because. In verse 13, he said, isn't it him? Isn't it him that's at work in you to will and to work? according to his good pleasure. Now, what is he saying? He's saying, look, you're going to live your faith the way you're supposed to because he's at work to change your thinking and your acting. You're willing and you're working. And you see, there's a disconnect for many of us. Some of us think that if we're acting, it doesn't matter what we think. And some of us believe that we actually, if we think the right things, it doesn't matter what we do. But here we see it in the negative light that those that were willing to subscribe to the authority of the beast, it proved itself either on their head or their hand. And you, there's something about this that I think we need to take away. That we need to be un, un, unusually diligent in our thinking. That's why Paul said, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's thoughts that you all need to take captive. There's things that I think every day that I don't want to share with most of you because most of you couldn't handle them. And they're not good things, they're bad things. Because those are the things that I need to identify and take captive or I'm not going to obey. And I share that transparently with you because I don't think I'm any different than you. And if that discourages you and you want to go to another place with a man that would tell you that he doesn't have those thoughts, that's up to you. But I'm just being honest with you. After all of these years of studying the Bible and, and sincerely seeking God, you know, I've never had an audible, and I, I believe that God can give them, but I've never had one. God moves on my heart. When I tell you that God laid you on my, laid you on my heart this week and I prayed for you, I mean that. But my faith is really, really practical. And I think it comes down to this, that when he says that those people that looked to the beast and they worshipped him, they said, who in the world could fight the beast? They were saying something. They were saying that they didn't believe that anyone else could win but the beast. And I think that that can look really practical. It can look like a young man that cheats on an exam. It looks like a young woman that is willing to give away her chastity to maintain a, maintain a relationship. It could look like a businessman or a businesswoman that, that is willing to compromise just to, to make it happen. It can look like a whole bunch of things. But the scripture seems to be very clear that when you live in this life, there's no neutrality. You're either honoring God or you're honoring something in the creation. One is idolatry and the other is worship. And God said, who will you choose? And Jesus said, look, sometimes following after me is going to require cutting off your hand. 
plucking out eyes. He didn't seem to tell us it was going to be easy. And so there's some powerful lessons here. And there's some lives that have lived, some of you have lived in this room that remarkably demonstrate this. I, ho I hope you would just be filled with encouragement. And yet there's many of us in this room that need to consider solemnly how it is that we've lived in this relationship between our thinking and our living. All right, let's take your questions. Is this beast the same beast refer, referenced in the book of Daniel? I believe it is. I believe it is. I, I had a lot of other material that I've had to lopped off, but I'll just give you that answer. I, I, I believe it is. That when, when Daniel's talking about the convergence, even from the beginning of the, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has in chapter 2 of the four, the different statue representing the different, the different nations, there's a convergence here. And national rebellion, international rebellion against God. So yes, I believe it is. When and why did the church start misinterpreting the beast as something yet to be? I, I, this is something, and I, this is a judgment call on my part in the beginning. I didn't take a whole sermon to describe to you the different positions, but there's only four of how you view the book of Revelation. Um, there is the premillennial position that sees it as all future. The millennium is still in front of us. And so typically that position would see this horrible persecution in front of us. And the premillennial position is represented historically as well as through dispensationalism. And dispensationalism in long term, but it simply means uh, a bunch of ideas that were articulated for the first time in 1830. And since 1830, there's been this hysteria. And there's some of you that can hold to a premillennial position historically, and you're not caught up in all of this because you just see a second coming in the beginning of a thousand-year reign. Uh, the second position, besides the two premillennial position, is this all-millennial position, which the alpha primitive negates it. And the all-millennial position doesn't believe there's a millennium. They believe that all the book of Revelation is just figurative and it describes the classic conflict between good and evil. But there seems too much historical correspondence to it, I think, for that. But the last position, the position that we would hold here at L2, is the position of postmillennialism. We believe that what we're going to see in chapter 20 is, is happening. And Jesus is going to come back, still future, and there's a progress that the church will make under that that reign of Jesus from heaven through his people now on earth. And it's a, it's a fairly interesting position. I held the other position my whole entire life until 2003. And I spent two years on this study and I had never considered some of these things. And so when my mind was given to the, to, to, to the con contemplation of the beast and the contemplation of a period of tremendous tribulation, I, like many other people, could be easily swept away because I had no balance. I had no capacity uh, to see that. And that's the purpose of this whole study is m m perhaps not to convert you from your present position, but at least to let you know that there's an intelligent position out there besides the one that you think you hold now. You can take that however you like. Okay, last question. Why would God lead John to write absolutely truthfully about a man who was already acting as the beast. 
Well, I, I think that there's a relevant perspective in that right now. Is, was he really that obscure to those people in the first century? Or did they read that and say, well, we know exactly who that is. You know, if, if you, most of you, know uh, the numbers of, of players on teams, whether it's basketball teams or baseball teams, and you might refer to them just by their number. You know, if I, we talked about the other night, you would know number 80 or number 88 or number 18, number 87. You think of those numbers, you think names. So why is it so obscure? Why do you think it's so vague? Perhaps it's just vague to you, and it wasn't vague at all. That would be my argument. So, good questions today, by the way. All right, let's pray, and we'll prepare for communion. Uh, Kyle will come up with the rest of the band, um, and uh, we'll take communion and finish our worship together. Father, I would ask that this would be a time in which you would, you would encourage us that, that there would be an interest that Jesus would take on his people that was so significant that he would write of these events just I believe shortly before they happened to prepare people to go through and to navigate through days and weeks and months and even a few years so that they would persevere so that their faith would continue to honor you instead of them being knocked off their pillars and, and fall in their faith and some of us know what that's like there's been times that you've braced us for some things and then there's times that we're just absolutely taken by surprise but either way it seems always as if your grace is your grace is sufficient to guide us through and so what we want to do for the next few moments is just uh, the Christians that are in this room we want to be able to uh, to raise our hands to you as we worship we want to be able to come down and to to mark again our faith that is dependent upon a broken body and a shed blood and that only uh, by, the, by the precious life of Jesus our Lord. And so as we worship you, we pray that uh, it would almost be as if you would condescend and snatch down the, the snatch up to your own heart the, the feebleness of our words and our, our songs, and you would cause them to really please you. I pray that you would minister them in our hearts and the Christians in this room would be greatly edified. And so we, we, we complete these moments now. Uh, with our worship and honor to you. We thank you for our time. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. You've been listening to the L2 Sermon Series, Overcoming Bystander Christianity, taught by Dr. Russ McHenry. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, email feedback at l2today.com. And thanks for listening.